Carrying huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain so close. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. How's it? How are we doing? Welcome back, folks. This is Moving the Needle Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Nietling. Thanks so much for downloading this, especially if you're a new listener. We've been busting out some cool interviews. We've pretty much done all the race reviews. We can do that season's done. Now, this is exciting for me. I have an absolute legend with me today. Now, some of you that are new to the sport might not know of this guy, but he was a legend in BMX. Newell Disorders, I bet you some of the youngsters don't even know what Newell Disorder is because all they're watching is YouTube. But this is a man that's been a BMX world champion, a legendary free rider, as I said. And then everyone went mad and crazy when they saw that jump at Crankworks with Thomas Lemoyne. But the founder of such a crazy stunt is Timo Pritzel. Welcome to the show. I am so excited. Hey, thanks a lot for the intro. Yeah, I'm so excited too to be on the show and uh, I know your show from listening to it and following it. So yeah, looking forward. Dude, that's quite an honor for me because um, I think we've all got idols and and, and getting to know you and, and looking up to you, uh, your past. And then, and you know, I'm from the downhill side, but we all saw each other at these events, you know, when the free ride events crossed over or when I was looking for inspiration, I would go to the free ride side because that's when dirt jumping was a big thing. And I did that basically the whole off season. Don't tell, well, I can tell them now, but I think it was great to learn your skill through, through dirt jumping and bike handling. Um, so that was pretty cool. But I mean, we haven't spoken for so long. Uh, what on earth have you been up to? <laughs> uh, where to start? Um, <clears throat> um, I mean, I have a daughter, she's eight. And uh, I've been the yoga teacher for 10 years now, 11 years. And um, yeah, that was really important for me to have some other passion as well. Like when I, when I was like, ah, okay, I'm getting older. I don't feel like competing that much anymore. And I, I needed something else. And it, it, I'm luckily I found yoga. So that was, that was a big part of my life in the last years. Yeah. And did you practice yoga and use it while you were competing? Um, I mean, to go back a little bit, it was, I, I think it was like before, before Crankworx when I jumped the whole box. Um, I, the, la the two years before, like doctors diagnosed me with some bullshit and said, I'm going to have a crooked back and that, that cannot help me. And I had an infection in my body and they, they told me, uh, you, you fucked. I had a had a specialist and she was like, oh, cool, you're an athlete. I want to take you as an example to show that also younger people can have a crooked back. And, and but the thing was, I was, I was riding on painkillers for two years. And um, even like, like I was at the point when cortisone injections didn't help anymore. And I was, so that, that situation was pretty fucked, obviously. <laughs> And um, so when I would at Crankworx, I mean, be, even without the pain, I, I often had the attitude, okay, I want to win. And I was a bit fearless in those situations. And I was really competitive from racing BMX for 12 years. And uh, I, I really wanted it. 
but it's all like even without the pain, I would have done it. But but it was a little bit like I don't give a fuck what happens. And so then I broke my foot, and luckily not too much happened, considering what could have happened. And um, I went on a on a path to travel by myself in Asia, and there I found yoga and talked to some spiritual people and tried natural medicine, tried osteopathy, tried different massages, and and went on my way to heal myself. Yeah. And um, you were talking about your fearlessness. So, I mean, maybe we parked the, the yoga stuff, which became so big in your life and a passion. But you came from this BMX racing background. And I guess when you race from a young age, all you know is winning and free ride. Um, there's obviously jam formats. There's these video parts. But you mentioned, like, you got to the point, sometimes you didn't give a shit. Like, you were going to – if that – so, so jumping that box at Crankworx, I mean, we jump in straight into this, but why not? You decided like it was worth the risk. You could easily get hurt, but if you jump it, you're probably going to win the competition if you land it. And you just didn't give a shit really for your own safety. Yeah, I mean, that that's what I meant, like was, was being a bit fearless. Like, I mean, riding in front of a couple thousand people in Canada and and I was like, fuck, Paul Bass, he has some new tricks. I don't have those tricks. Fuck, I want to win. And um, <laughs> but, but going back a little bit, I, I grew up racing, but also doing BMX shows. I started with BMX shows when I was 12. And the biggest thing was we, 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 we had a jump ramp, and step by step, we, we had the distance bigger. So for the high life, we jumped over cars. So I was really good in long distance, and I was like, pretty confident for example i i jumped six cars at a show without a starting ramp and stuff like this so i, I was really good at handling long distance stuff and judging the speed and i, I jumped the box on top uh, there was also a whole box on top uh, back then at whistler and yeah I, I just misjudged the speed i just went too fast i was and uh, i was afraid to hit the um, hit the box so i went a bit in a funny angle and that was that yeah but um and seeing thomas lemoyne do it now like and everyone i couldn't find you on instagram for a while there probably spelt your wrong name because of a new disorder which we choked off air <laughs> in the beginning your last name but um i mean that must have brought some serious memories back to when you jumped it and maybe sort of giving that idea to the future generation, even though it took, what year was that? 2004, five? What, what year was it when you jumped it? I'm not sure yeah. if it was 2004 or five, yeah. I mean, like I, I woke up and, and I was like, holy shit, so many messages. And it, it of course, uh, it gave me a smile and I'm, I'm a fan of Thomas Lamont's writing and the new level now is just so insane and, the skills and style those guys have and uh I'm, I'm a big fan and i watch it and 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 also in the years before sometime sometime people were using even like are you gonna like where was it i think a district ride i think it was aaron chase or ken think they were uh, i was just walking in and they were just having a conversation and they were saying like are you gonna team with this thing and I, I was like, whoa, <laughs> what's happening? <laughs> so, um, 
Yeah, on the one side, you know, I'm I'm proud. On the one side, I'm like, hey, hey, kids, don't don't fucking risk too much. It's 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 a gamble, you know. It's uh, sometimes it's worth it, but you really have to listen and and learn how to listen to your your gut feeling. Yeah. So it's that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's always the big challenge, I guess. What uh, maybe we can take a step down memory lane because you mentioned you're jumping cars and doing car shows at 12 years old. So you start BMX racing. Um, and then is it because the you said the Berlin Wall came down and then they were doing these sort of car shows and stuff? Like what's the timing of that? Because the Berlin Wall, I did some research, 1989 it fell or they opened up the, the cross passage. So you, how old are you at that time? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I can go back a little bit history-wise. I mean, I started... I was at the playground. I was six years old, and uh, I saw a wheelie battle from some kids riding BMX bikes, and I was pretty much hooked from that time. and And back then, everything was pretty freely. Like, I mean, I was just going on the playground and coming back at night. And those kids, they liked me and they took care of me. And for me, it was like a huge adventure to go with those 10, 12 year old kids on, on BMX rides in the neighborhood. And um, you're still there because the camera's off. Yeah, yeah, the camera yeah, was gone. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so so that was that was my start in BMX, and um, it, so with six, I already had my first BMX race, and I had a really heavy bike that was too big. Before I had a sixteen inch that I was already breaking, and the bikes back then were just so shit, and and I mean, 84, that was like when the BMX boom after E.T. was, the movie E.T. And it was just a big boom. And uh, I was I was right there. Yeah. And um, so talk to about these car shows at 12. I mean, surely yeah. you're one of the younger guys jumping cars and yeah. there must be some stuff going on. I mean, you must have grown up pretty quickly cons considering you would have had some naughty older guys jumping alongside you <laughs> yeah because when i was six the first time i saw bmx freestyle was at a some trade show in my neighborhood and the same guys i later on when i was 12 jumped with i saw them then when i was six and uh, there was one german bmx magazine called bmx speed and my hero was a little bit his name was uh rumbo eddie and like rumbo like the movie i wasn't allowed to see because he was just like like a really cool freestyle guy, but he was like way ahead of his times. And those guys were jumping the show and jumping over cars and doing freestyle stuff. So that was my first time I saw it. So then later on, fast forward, I was always the guy, oh, the little guy, he can jump good. And and we had two BMX tracks in Berlin. And when it got boring, we, we, we jumped backwards, tried transfers. And so I always loved jumping. So then I was allowed to jump with the, the big guys when I was 12 and also going to trade shows and other things with them without my parents. And um, going, now coming back to what, when the wall went down, so many car dealers wanted shows because of all the Easterners, the East Berliners, the East Germans, they finally all wanted the, the, the Western cars because it was pretty messed up. They, they were 
getting the Western TV, saw all the stuff that we are having, but they only had two cars their whole life, you know, like the two models they can choose from. So obviously they really wanted Western cars. And so we did a lot of shows, you know. That's so, it's fascinating. It's actually just crazy. Some of the history that um, has happened and, and you've been through there, like as, as a youngster, as you develop, but um, you later on jumped a section of the Berlin Wall or what? Because you, you reposted some of those yeah, magazine yeah. shots. So where, how does that work? Where does that come from? Um, so they left one piece of the Berlin Wall called the Eastside Gallery in Berlin, just as an example and for the tourists and to have it as a, as a reminder of history. And um, when I was younger in the 80s, I kept everything that had to do with BMX, everything. Because back then it, it, it was... I mean, when I saw one guy was, that had Vans on, I asked him if he rides BMX. You know, that was how the scene was. Like, I was so into it. And um, because my my older sister, she, she had a boyfriend that was in the U.S. Army, and they had a base in Berlin. And I was getting the BMX magazines, BMX Plus, BMX Action in the 80s already through my sister's boyfriend. So I was, it was my Bible. So I studied all, everything. And... Um, so coming back to coverage, like there was one German magazine, they had a photoshopped image of a BMX guy jumping the wall, photoshopped, like when the wall was still there. And it was on a cover and it was a guy like in Redline BMX. And I kept it at my desk for all those years. And um, when, you know, I was thinking every year when you will just say, okay, what I'm going to do, I need something special. I want to produce something on my own. And uh, then I had uh, my childhood dream, that image of the guy jumping the wall. And I just, yeah, I just went there and, uh, in the morning. Like first I was like, ah, can I ask those officials? And I tried a little bit, but they, they there was no way they didn't understand what I was talking about. And so, um, yeah, I just practiced the height. Uh, but I was practicing it at a spot where the height, the, the speed, I didn't have that much speed and somehow I had to go uphill and it was like, look, last second and I barely made the height. So I was pretty nervous like then when I do it, did it blindly in the morning, it was like five something for sunlight. Um, but it, it worked out really well. The police came and uh, I was like, shit, now it's done, you know? But they were actually really cool and they were scared. So you had no permission, official permission? No, no. The thing is, like, back then, Berlin was still a little bit more raw. You know, like, now it's, like, there's a huge Mercedes-Benz arena. And back then, there were, like, artists and musicians and clubs behind the wall. There was a beach area by by the river. And it was all really, um, yeah, party people. And, and Berlin was known for that, yeah. Yeah, I spent one of my funnest weekends with a friend that uh, after school went and lived in Berlin. Now, obviously, it's a lot later, but the diverse culture is still pretty rife there now, you would say, right? And I remember partying and we rode the city on bikes. It, it was one of my best cities, I would say, that I've that I visited. Yeah, so with, with the Berlin Wall, um, it was also emotional for me, the subject, because I grew up with the wall. Like my house was close to the Berlin Wall and I had friends 
for example, suffering. There were had one friend who came over. He was allowed to come over a bit earlier, like grown up in this that system, a different school system. And I saw how much he struggled. And we also had some family members on the other side of the wall. Every time we went on a holiday or to BMX race, we had to cross the border and we're in we're in that world, you know. And as well, one time I think I was 10 and it was Easter weekend. We were driving through the Eastern Highway and we stopped at the parking place. And I saw one kid like my age 10 with big eyes running towards me. And I was, whoa, what's happening? And 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 he was really nervous and he asked for chocolate. And and I mean, those situations, you know, because like I said, they had Western TV and they had stuff they were not allowed to have. I mean, like not everything was bad in that system, but obviously it was really controlled and a lot of things wrong. And um, so it was an emotional subject for me to jump the wall and and organize it and, and do it, yeah. Yeah, that must be super emotional, especially if you say you had family on the other side and someone like me, I can't even understand it, you know it's it's you're so far withdrawn but yeah that must have been so what just what emotion like super proud that you could do something like that um such a historic thing not not really proud it was more like you know it was it was an idea and a childhood dream and also yeah going for it i mean so many people always talk about things but just like I'm like because I organized it. I had I organized the crane. I organized the budget with Oakley and 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 the the filmers and <clears throat> the photographers and and also like the whole thing around it. And um, like I said, like the, the, it wasn't like the height. Other people could have done it as well. <clears throat> it was more about like, hey, it was my idea and I did it. You know. Yeah, that's awesome. Speaking of ideas. So we're sending uh, some voice notes and some texts, and I don't even know if I would have ever dug this information up, which is awesome that you shared it. You wrote to a U.S. magazine asking for a host family in America. What is the full story there? <laughs> I mean, it was I was in school, and I, I it was okay, but I wasn't really interested. I was just fully on bikes, and uh, yeah, just traveling, racing, living. My 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 all my interest was in bikes, so in BMX. And then I was like, I don't want to keep going to school. My teacher was like, Hey, you can study more. Everything here, you know, you got your help, you got everything. And then I had the idea to write a letter to the ABA magazine, American BMXer. And uh, I had some replies. One little kid didn't ask his parents yet, and uh, some something was weird. And then. One, one family from Vegas and they were like, Oh, the German champion in BMX racing. Wow. And the, the, the guy in Vegas, he had a BMX team and, and he just helped me organize it. And it was, I'm really thankful for him as well, because it's like when you do like an exchange here, you have to pay the company like 10 grand or something like that. And then you like, you have officials watching out and you're like in the system and, and, and he just organized it. And then I just went to the airport and, kind of got picked up by a white trash family sorry but it it was it was so bizarre but you know I, i'm 17 and then i'm like okay this is my new mom and dad for the year and <laughs> and uh but it was it was so cool um 
being on my own and just going for it. And also there are two BMX racing tracks in Vegas and a really cool BMX scene. And um, they they welcomed me pretty warmly because they knew like how motivated I was, how, how much I was living the dream. And um, I, it took me a little bit to get used to the American BMX racing, a bit more elbows and, and um, but I, I was really fast, like, for example, I took third place at the ABI Grands, that's the biggest race of the world, uh, like just behind Randy Stumpfauser and 16, 17 expert. And I made the Cruiser main and I made the Race of Champions main, open class. And um, so I, I was pretty good <laughs> in racing. But I, I, was, I was still jumping a lot, especially because I met TJ Levin in Vegas. That was like, we were in the same team it was called Hurdles Hotshots and so Hurdles Hotshots here also like my my host family like they had a team called Hurdles Killerbees so it was both teams were owned by Hurdle and Nick Hurdler and he was a crazy warehouse owner in Vegas and his children were racing and he spent a lot of energy and money time and to to help us with our racing dream like having a old ground bus and for the team and then traveling to the races and seeing the States and so many experiences. <laughs> yeah, man, that brings back so many memories for me. I, I went over a little bit older. I was 18 or 19 and then went over to Seattle, my first American race and was based in America. I mean, meeting, so I met Brian Lopes and Anne Caroline Chassong maybe the first week after Seattle and my eyes were just like, whoa. And you're meeting TJ Lavin. You, I mean, he went on to be such a legend of the sport. And uh, in the BMX race season scene, were you training back then, or were you just riding your bike? Like, what was the what was the scene like back then? Um, I mean, it was so cool. They had like on on Wednesday night races. They had 150 starters, and. Um, I mean, Vegas is a pretty odd city. And when you're a teenager, you're not allowed to gamble. And um, But the BMX racing scene was really cool. And the high school was pretty strange as well, like 3,000 people. And for example, I didn't like math, so I took weight training for math. So every day I had PE and weight training. And I rode my bike to school because I didn't like the school bus. So I was, I was really fit. And... Um, just spending all my time on a bike because there was not much, I mean, it's a desert and not much else to do. And I was, mm, the school system, like it was a little bit like, there were like the cheerleaders, the football players, um, the black, the Mexicans, the nerds. And I was some like, I was like somewhere like, I didn't really know so many people. I was a bit shy in the beginning too. I went to second language class with the Mexicans and really they were actually like my best friends then also the best community that I had because in the system, like, it's not like we have it here in Germany. You, you have one teacher and you do like travel trips together and you have the teacher for four or five years. And there, there was no, everybody was like, felt like on their own. It was a bit uh, strange to see that system. Yeah. Yeah. It must've been a bit daunting, I guess, if you come uh, from Germany as a youngster and maybe the English isn't as good. So the BMX scene, does that start just like, does the pressure build from these amazing achievements you make? Are you burnt out? Like where does the mountain biking fit in? Like when does that start 
mm. being like top of mind for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I was successful in BMX racing going back a little bit in Germany. And for example, I had, my, I had a sponsor, Hutchins, that was right, right after Hutch. And then I was racing for Sun Chippy. And I, I was um, also I really starting then at King of Dirt competitions, like Todd Lyons was coming over to Europe a lot of times, like in 92, 93. And then like I made both finals at the European Championships in Sweden, for example, in Cruiser and Expert. And then I, I jumped the King of Dirt competition with, with Todd Lyons and Dave Clymer. Dave Clymer, he's also was like a legend in, on the S&M bikes. And um, so that was, so I always enjoyed jumping. And then going to the States, I loved racing. But, but coming back, BMX racing in Germany was a bit too official and too many rules and the tracks were boring. So I started jumping more and hitting more dirt jump competitions. And um, like on 96, I had my first magazine cover. My, my family, my parents always really supported me. It's a bike family. And uh, I always went on long distance rides. I always had mountain bikes. And um, for example, I did like cross country races in, in 91 already, you know, a mountain bike. And, um, but but back then mountain biking was also like a little bit as a cool BMX. So, you know, like I had a, had a job for a mountain bike magazine that was since 97 and I had to shave my legs to be able to have that job and wear spandex, you know, and as a cool BMX, I was like, what the fuck's going on here? <laughs> and, but it was a cool job. I was in the South, in the South of France. <laughs> I was in the That's South of terrible. France. Yeah, I was I was in the south of France and I was like, wow, every day for testing bikes I get 150 German marks. That's a dope job. And and it was a cool crew, a cool photographer that I'm still friends with. And but I had to shave my legs and and I wasn't allowed to wear my shorts. I had to wear spandex. And uh, th this was mountain biking for me. So I was like, ah, I I love training and like I said in 91 I did already cross country racing. Um but later on with sponsors, I, I was, when I was world champion on BMX, I was on GT and uh, they invited me to bike festivals and at bike festivals in Europe, often they had like small BMX tracks and then it was easy to get attention and do some tricks. And back then you were the shit when you do the no foot one hand or did it jump and everybody was stoked, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, Super cool. And then, I mean, I think when I got to know of you, it's probably a little bit further on. Uh, these video parts and new old disorders, like how does that come about? Yeah, I mean, it was, I think, in 2001, uh, John Cohen, Jason Richardson, that was also on your podcast, um, they came to Berlin for Bike Magazine. Bike Magazine is the biggest European bike mag. And um, they did some testing and they they asked us to test some bikes. And we were, I showed them in Berlin some dirt jumping spots. They stayed at my apartment and I showed them the trails in Berlin. And uh, then I got to know John Cohen and we got to be friends. And then it happened that his good friend, that he was supposed to do hell track with in the desert in San Diego, he got hurt badly 
And then just John Cohen hit me up and said, hey, Timo, you, you want to come to San Diego and do some filming? And I, I didn't really know what I was getting into. And I I mean, when I, when I got there and it's close to the desert, close to Mexico, and John had just built this insane track and and uh, really hats off to him and, and also... Um, what's his name? Um, it, it slipped my mind. But like, yeah, I mean, like being in a desert and then like, you know, filming with a helicopter, all this 35 millimeter stuff or filming with the helmet cam, 60 millimeter, like it was like a depression dome, like this heavy camera back then. And, and uh, it was a really cool experience, but still like, I, I didn't know how much it would help me. And I'm, I'm really thankful for the freeride guys too. And John Cohen and our big red Ted, like he was helping building and he's a yeah legend from Squamish and been building for many years. And, and, um, I, I wasn't for me like those big jumps that were huge, but I, uh, I, I it, it was fine with me. It was more like my the material that I was riding. I mean, we were riding cross country bikes, small in, in small frames and cross country forks. I was a BMX and I I cut my handlebars and I put the handlebar ends in the fork because I was I didn't like suspension. I was like, man, I'm a BMX, I don't like suspension. <laughs> I cut the handlebars and put them in the fork. <laughs> And the cross-country fork. <laughs> <laughs> but those jumps are, um, thinking back, you jarring my memory, like watching it back then was like watching Darkfest now. It was like before its time and you were doing it on hardtails and bullshit bikes. And the jumps were big. Even if you went now with a hardtail, you would probably think twice. Yeah, totally. I mean, even with New World Disorder 3, it was more than Darkfest. And I think and fast series and i think it was that was pretty cool i liked that track more on on the first try um on one jump we had trouble clearing it and then i tried a different jump and i took all the speed that i had sorry <clears throat> and um i i landed flat bottom on hardtail and i destroyed my bike and then it's the first time I had a full suspension and then I just got used to this one and tried this one because why I broke my other, the other bike. Yeah. Shit, man. That's going down memory lane. And, the and then competing, that's like a natural progression to do crankworks competitions. Once you started doing these film shoots and that. Um, yeah, I just got invited more and then to the first like seal the classics and, uh, before Cranksworks, it was called Joyride, and I think I won the first or the second one, or I don't know if I won two. I won two Sierra Classic Dirt Jump events as well. And um, I mean, for me also, uh, as a BMXer, I, I progressed so much and I just had fun just riding my bike. And um, just come, going back just a tiny bit, I mean, when I came back from the States, I was working as a postman. You know, I, I on a bike because I didn't have a job and didn't want to study. So that was like, okay, I do some BMX shows and I work as a postman. That was in 90, yeah, 96. And in 98, I was world champion in BMX, you know. And with, with that title, I was like, holy shit, that's a big door opener. And the good thing is I had, had friends that helped. They always were doing the BMX shows and they also had an agency 
they organized the first European King of Dirt series called European King of Dirt. And um, I learned a lot being in that agency and helping them and uh, being involved a little bit. So like he was also like, like a big role model for me. Like when I was 10, he was already the 16 year old BMX racer. I looked up to Marco Montai. And um, so that helped me a lot. And then when I was world champion, the, the media and the press, uh, so many things happened. I was, for example, I was in a, I was in a daily soap, the biggest daily soap in Germany at that time, 6 million views a, a day in that show. I was on the daily soap for half a year. I, I had, I was riding for GT. I had my own bike. I was allowed to have my own clothes. I always had my sponsors on and, and I had a really silly, silly role. Like for example, the end of the role was I, I beat up, beat up a handicapped guy and I went to jail and that was the end of my role. How, how did so we get you, to uh, <laughs> uh, Not only a former writer, you're a former actor. I don't know how we got there, but I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> you're a soap star yeah but i mean i, I mean it, it helped me to be in front you're of the a camera man of many many talents here timo <laughs> yeah like i said like i would say i like the sentence my bike took me places school never could because my bike opened so many doors for me um those experiences like organizing events having my own closing company for six years uh i organizing Red Bull halfpipe contests and helping to get Matt Hoffman and other halfpipe riders to Belgium. And, and yeah, those experiences from through the bicycle and that the traveling. Yeah. Yeah. I would say life experience over education within reason, you know, you, you mm. can't buy the experiences and the stories you've, you've got. And, uh, they just life experience. Um, what's some of the crazy stuff you can remember? I mean, hanging out with someone like Matt Hoffman. Just Google Matt Hoffman. I mean, he is the godfather of of BMX and, and vert riding, and done some in, most insane sort of stunts on a on a BMX. So, yeah, uh, so many things. But um, for example, I. I had uh, for a TV show in Germany, I did like a world record high jump thing. Because again, my friend Marco Manta and the agency in Berlin who had the European King of Dirt series, they had the idea to do a high jump thing at the shows because we were like, man, this is good for the spectators. This is obvious. You have the height and it's it's a big thing. And um, so I did it at, for the Guinness record show. And... Um, it was pretty huge. And then 10 years, nothing happened. Then 10 years later, I get an email from China because the YouTube video did get like 2 million views or something like that because world record BMX high jump. And um, then I got invited to Beijing. And first I wanted to have a Chinese rider competing against me, but I couldn't find anybody. So I just took my friend with me. And they also paid for a photographer and a filmer all my buddies. So we just had a buddies trip and a friends trip uh, going to China to Beijing in 2008. And uh, for me, it's things like this that happen, you know, like 10 years later, you get an email and, and, 
experiencing Beijing in that time and also having time having time to travel, seeing the Chinese wall and and meeting the locals. And you know, back then you when I was like the big name from New Disorder, I went somewhere and all the locals were like, fuck, Timo's in town. And then you all had those, the cool bike scene helping you to see their city and showing you the bike spots. And and for me, those experiences uh, are just amazing. Yeah, and even a couple of years later, I got another email from uh, from Hong Kong and a lady from a mall wanted to show, and and I knew I had a couple centimeters more, and it wasn't. I was always good in high jumping, and and I, it's not really like other people were trying it, and wasn't really also the starting ramp. It wasn't really like a set of rule how it had to be. Also, the the takeoff lip wasn't really a set of rules, so it was a bit funny, but it was a really good show, and I'm good in high jumping and. So and I, I sold the show again and to Hong Kong to a mall, making good money and inviting my friends again, <laughs> organizing everything and like being also a speaker and 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 having my friends with me and having a ball again and uh, traveling, enjoying enjoying life, yeah. How high is, is this jump? How, do you measure it off the ground or from the top of the lip? What What are the yeah. parameters? What were they back then? And how high did you jump? Uh, back then, I think that the, the takeoff ramp was 165. So it wasn't that high. And also like in the studio, we didn't have a lot of speed for the ramp. So that's why it was like with different uh, circumstances. But uh, the first record, I think was... I think five meters 20 and then later on it was some 555 or something like that but also the whole progress i mean Dude, that's the process, so high. is that off the ground yeah off the ground yeah yeah Whew, and that's but like also, falling I mean, out of the sky stuff <laughs> yeah yeah i mean also the experience like being in a in a tv show in beijing and and i the the people that I met there, but also also to experience that system. For example, in a hotel, like some web pages were blocked, or also we had always someone that kind of was watching out for us, or or we met some young people or artist people, and we we met people that were really suppressed in Beijing in two thousand eight. That was also when the Olympics were around, so the government really did some messed up stuff. I mean, there was like. There's this, it's kind of like tai chi. tai chi, it's called Falun Gong. It's just people like being in their power, breathing, having energy through movement. And they put those people in jail. So like, it was pretty uh, an eye-opener for me to, to see those both sides. You know, like on the one side you have the Olympics and you have such a cool city and culture and rich history and Chinese medicine and all that stuff and then you have this side as well yeah yeah you've seen some uh, pretty diverse cultures growing up in one and then and seeing it there have you been back since or is that your last time 2008 was beijing and then i think 2011 i was in hong kong yeah yeah hong kong's a f uh, hong kong's a fun city did you go to ride in hong kong what did you do in hong kong um 
I saw some friends in Berlin. They had some friends there who were fixie riders in Hong Kong. It's a pretty crazy city to be a fixie rider or a bike rider. And um, and through them, I met a lot of cool people and they took us street riding. And um, But also, I mean, just and enjoying life going on an island. For example, like my friends, they wanted to party more and be in the city and, and shopping. And I was like, I have enough of the city and I went to an island. And it's sometimes also experiences like this. Like I went there and not booking anything. I always, I love traveling by myself and not really having a plan and just seeing who I meet and what my gut feeling tells me where to go. And then ju I just ask a random woman on the, on the street and everything was booked. And I was like, hmm, can maybe you have a tip? And she looked at me and it was like, ah, normally I don't do it, but I'm an artist. I have a whole artist space right there on the other side. Uh, you can have it. And and it's it's always like things like this that, that happen when you travel that are cool experiences. Yeah, if you're open-minded and like you say, sometimes planning is good and if you're that type of person, but sometimes going with the flow and letting the universe sort of guide you within reason, within safety reasons mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> these days. But that's so cool. It sounds like that's something you really miss maybe of your career, maybe post-retiring and stuff like that is, is these experiences, the adventures you go on. Um, actually, I, I still have them. Because I'm I'm so lucky, I'm that I'm with 45. I'm still in the game. I I produce my own videos and photos and have my sponsors. And I'm I'm really thankful that I'm still able to do this. And it's it's still fun because I also have yoga. And it took me a long time to kind of let go of this competing thing or proving something to people. I mean just. Two, three years ago, I was still riding Audi 9s and taking photos, like not really competing with the young guys that were on the level of their own, but just having that spot like, oh, Timo, the old guy, he was at all Audi 9s and 9 nights. I was allowed to be always there. Sometimes I was also teaching yoga to the athletes and um, just producing good content and so then, then I was at Audi 9s again, you know, like I, this, I was always sometimes a bit split, like, man, like I love to jump a hip and do a tabletop and have this amazing picture. And it's also, I'm a huge fan of quality content and at events like this, when you have amazing photographers, amazing filmers, it's so cool to produce stuff like this. And I have so much respect for those guys as well. And, um, yeah, but I was always a bit split in between, okay, listening to my gut feeling, am I too old? Do I have to do this now? Do I want to do this? <laughs> you know, but always really listening to my feelings because I, I, uh, learned, learned my lessons there a lot and really learned how to listen to my gut feeling there. How do you just, how do you describe <clears throat> that sort of this process of letting go of competition? Maybe it's the ego as well. Uh, what's like a process you can describe to us? Because you said it took a long time. So it's not really just a switch, is it? No, no. I mean, for me, it started a bit when when I was world champion. And then I was like, then going with a title on the back, going to a contest. And 
that was also a time when I had some big injuries, like I cut my spleen. I, 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 uh, I had a broken head and many big concussions and, um, that was, that, there were moments like, for example, in Paris, Bercy, there was like a big motocross event sponsored by Vans and I was a Vans team rider and, um, BBMX had a halftime show in front of 15,000 people. And then Corinne Nastasio didn't show up. And then the organizers were like, oh, now we know Timo's a big star. He's world champion. We really push him. And then I just had cut my spleen and didn't ride for a long time. And then being in an arena, 15,000 people, and a lot of good French kids that were so amazing in riding. So, you know, those... Those were times where like, I loved my job, but then I was like, fuck, the pressure that I felt there just after a big, big injury. And um, for me, I, I'm, I'm quite uh, sensitive to what people were saying. A lot of times I was thinking too much about uh, what people thinking about me. And, um, a good example is maybe like in the high times I at Eurobike, I really was signing like 1000 autographs. And then there were like 10 people being like a bit negative or jealous or giving me some shit. And I forgot the 990 happy people and really focused on the 10 people that were jealous or gave me some stuff. So, uh, like looking back, sometimes I was struggling a bit also like industry wise, like with sponsors and you know, it is with different marketing people and it's like a relationship too. When you're with a company for 13 years or something like that, you have team managers and marketing guys you you spend so much time with and, and uh, it's also personal then when something doesn't work anymore, it's life, but it's, Sometimes I took it quite hard, yeah. I also moved a bit. Sometimes when I talk too much or too long, you have to stop me because maybe I jump a little bit. <laughs> no, 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 no. This shows for, for us to have a good time and to understand you. They don't need to hear from me. But, yeah, there's so many things that spring to mind that uh, I can resonate with. I think other people can start understanding the the, the pressures of being a professional athlete. It's come up a lot. You said you listened to the Soderstrom one. That one resonated a lot for um, people that maybe haven't got to the point that they've pursued like a professional athlete career because it's quite a sought-after career. I don't know if it gains respect or or what it may be. You know, There's certain careers that people sort of – Maybe they do respect it more, right? So a pilot, maybe not anymore because of COVID. You don't want to really go into the airline industry. But a lawyer, someone that you know how much work and sacrifice and dedication maybe went into one aspect. Um, but it brings with itself so much pressure. Like you say, you've got this pressure of, say, an injury. And now you're looking at this fan base or this opportunity that you can excel. And if you say no because it's a safer option, you might not get an opportunity in the future. So looking back now, it seems like you're way more reflective of what that pressure was doing to you. 
and how to manage it. And, and we can get into uh, the next subject of the human nature of worrying about the one bad comment versus 99 good ones. Yeah, I mean, for me, I started pretty early to to look at those things because I was I was pretty pretty successful, and but I wasn't really happy. I was like, "What what's happening? I'm I'm living my childhood dream, but I'm so sensitive." And I felt those things, you know, like having a magazine cover or winning a contest. I was happy, but it it didn't make me happy internally. So, um, because I started yoga pretty early, I also met some cool spiritual people and met people that were talking about other things in life. Uh, for example, like after Crankworks, when I broke my foot and jumped to Siemens box, I was traveling on my own and I just typed in in a computer in a cafe back then, internet cafe. I was in Chiang Mai in Thailand and I typed in yoga and Tai Chi. And I ended up in a center from Mantak Chia. He wrote like 10 books and it's called Tower Garden. And um, and just, yeah, like like I said, those different approach to healing and uh, not only giving you painkillers and having that approach from the Western medicine that I, I'm not against Western medicine, but I, too often I had wrong diagnosis and also words are so powerful. And when a doctor tells you you're fucked or we cannot help you uh, or doesn't even look at you and just gives you a painkiller, I get, I get so angry. <laughs> and um, yeah, but coming back to, I felt like I wasn't happy. So I started searching more and I have, I have one friend, He's a he was a professional skydiver. His name is Knut Krecker, like a legend. I just met him at the airport one time and uh, we stayed friends. And he had, I mean, for 10 years, he jumped out of a plane, a crazy life. And I, from him listening to his stories and how he was trying to digest it, coming, going back to the normal life, Bring a, being an adrenaline junkie and having this incredible life. Um, he found like a group therapy group from a therapy couple. Um, it's called um, Energy Breast Bodywork and it's kind of like a group therapy thing. And end of 20, I did like a two year training with that group. Um, it was like 12, 12 weeks at 12 time one week in that room to different subjects. Um, really going deep, looking at your shit, like what comes up. And when I try to explain it, it's a little bit, I mean, you can go to therapy and talk about things and feelings, or you can really, I'm a big fan of it, like when it's the right setting, really go into it. When you're in a group of people with like 30 people, there are some people that really trigger you let's say there's this this guy or this woman that kind of stands for your mom and dad and 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 you have a setting where you like get triggered and then you work with that person and then you look at it okay what's behind it and i learned so much from it like seeing 70 year old man like 
still wanting appreciation from the mom that from a childhood trauma years, years ago, and he was 17, still he was so into that. And um, so looking at other people, looking at the therapy couple, how they deal with it, and having learning about like having tools, like having dynamic meditation, Kundalini meditation, meditation for a whole week with a um, dark meditation, everything shut off, only you sitting there in the, in the not, not a cave, but like in the, in the bunker kind of thing, the food was coming in. And it was amazing how much energy I had. And when I was not distracted, distracted and what comes then the stuff comes up that is supposed to come up when you're not so distracted with all those things when you're sitting there for a whole week meditating it was an incredible experience and um but also really really intense um experiences emotional sometimes i was like there for a whole week and then i had a bike event and just was so raw and emotional, heart open. And then I was like, it was sometimes pretty tough for me to, to then from this world to go into that world. But for me, it makes so much sense like that the stuff that you have in your basement from your, from your childhood, from your family, the, your family does the, the best they can do. But some stuff get, comes into your family. I mean, my, my parents, I grew up right after the Second World War. My dad never met his dad and he did his best, but sometimes he didn't know how to be a dad. My mom did his best, but in her family, she wasn't really experiencing love. So she wasn't able to show at, uh, attention and love to me really. So I love my parents and I am totally fine with it, but I'm just trying to, that was like for me, trying to digest stuff and understand it better. And also then saying, okay, if I would have had everything in my life and a lot of love, I wouldn't been such a fighter on my bicycle. That, that was my drive to get attention. Even when learning later on, okay, this outside attention doesn't make me happy inside. And um, yeah, that was, that was uh, I'm really thankful for those experiences there. Yeah, that's incredible. There's so many strings I could pull on there. But it seems like you probably chase some of these accolades and things, like you said, from some childhood voids, as well as maybe when you started reflecting and, and yoga can help you with that, that you're almost living two lives. Because part of me thinks, and I don't know if you've heard of the book Ego is the Enemy. I might have brought it up before. And uh, a lot of successful people and sports businessmen you sort of need that little fuck you that little ego on you to drive you to the top that nothing's good enough and you're gonna you know when you get on the racetrack you're gonna beat everyone's ass and you can shake hands afterwards but it also can topple you over if you're not aware of it or why you're searching for these accolades um, and like you said you've done so much deep work and and i wanted to understand what you get from yoga but you've mentioned a bit of meditation and and things like that why do you think it's so hard and i'm speaking to myself to make yoga or time for yourself or being quiet especially in the modern world 
Why is it so difficult? Is it because it's so uncomfortable to go and do this deep work? Yeah, for me, it's. I think it's for some for some really hard to look at what is trigger, triggering them, or look at some trauma, or look at some old stuff. And um, for me, yoga is also meditation and movement. Like when I started with yoga, um, or also with the spiritual stuff. Like I couldn't just sit down and be like, oh, peace. Uh, I needed like a dynamic meditation. There was like a dynamic meditation from Osho where we were like having a towel with a big uh, knob and slamming it on the floor and screaming and standing and screaming like a warrior. And after that, holding your, your arms up for like 10 minutes and your arms get heavy after two minutes. It's an incredible. And so... Uh, as an athlete for me it's also it, it's not good for everybody like oh you sit down and you just deal with your shit for me it was really good to have those tools and doing an hour and a half breathing workshop and uh like like kind of like the winhof stuff now that is so popular uh, and it, it makes so much sense to me that emotions are stored in your body and that it is that's why yoga and breath work and things like that are so healing because you're healing all traumas or like where your breath doesn't go to. Like when you open up through yoga and energy work and breath work, you open up old things. And it's tough sometimes to look at things, but it's they're there. And there's always, they're always, I think in life, you always get another chance to look at it and make the same mistake or. The universe is showing you, okay, you didn't learn from this one. Bam, here's another one. Maybe you learn now. So it com comes up always again yeah, and again. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. <laughs> and and what, what catched me in yoga was, I mean, for me, I, I was happy on a bike when I was risking my life a little bit or feeling like such an adrenaline rush and, being in a moment because we have to be in a moment, you know, to, to yeah, you have to be in a moment to see everything and be so concentrated. And, and then to have that feeling, even if it was just a tiny bit on the yoga mat or breathing or meditation and, and, and it felt so healing. I'm, I'm a pretty quiet, mellow guy, but I'm, I have a loud monkey in my mind as well. So I really, <laughs> you're not the uh, only one, my friend. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a Mine huge is thing. very loud and very busy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and it's even now, like I'm especially now with those, the mobile phone and the dopamine hits when you're scrolling and it's so easy to be sucked into this. And it's it's addictive. It's it's I mean it's it's shown that it's so addictive and we, everybody knows it. We say, oh, we don't have time to do 20 minutes of exercise or yoga or meditation, but then we have four hours of screen time, four hours. Like it really hit me. Like one teacher of me, like Max Strom, he's a yoga teacher. He said, when you combine this at the end of your life, when you think like, let's say like two, three, four hours a day, screen time, movies, mobile phone, computer most of the time wasted most of the time was waste that's nine years of your life at the end of your life 
imagine you're, you're sitting in, you're like in deathbed and like, oh, life was beautiful, but wasting fucking nine years in front of the screen, wasting, it's That's like- That's insane. The, it's incredible. Like that, that really slapped me. Like I, I mean, I, I I'm also, I, I always have to slap me again and again when I'm just like, oh, that screen. Especially now in the world, what is happening now with all the negative stuff, I really have to detox. Yeah, hundred hundred percent. But I mean, it's designed to addict up. There are way smarter people that have looked at the emotions and all the things that can addict us. There's a reason you swipe down. It comes from, I think it's come up here before, it comes from the casinos. And, and, and they've mimicked that with Instagram scrolling and all those, all those things, man. And um, so you get this mental side. So yoga, which is a physical practice, but actually I've done a, a little bit of yoga, enough to know that an hour yoga session is challenging for me to stay focused and not think that I should be somewhere else. And, and some, of the, some of the moves, I'm like, wow, this is actually very humbling seeing some old lady or gentleman and they're in this pose and it's not, a, I mean, the lady looks at me and says, oh, it's this. I said, I can't get into a position, but I'll keep my ego at the door. I, I need another posture. So it is very humbling, I think, for the, the macho man and the guy that, so my yoga studio that I go, or they have classes at the gym. Now, obviously you walk past all the weights to get there. So that's a challenge in itself in this modern world, right? Oh, I'm going to go to yoga with the, the old um, retired ladies when the guys are pushing weight. So there's that side, but it seems like you really use it for a, a mental break and, and, and well-being. Yeah, but also it's the thing like there's so many yoga styles. Uh, in the beginning, for example, I was also in competitive mode. I went to some uh, yoga classes and... Um, <laughs> I, got, really? I, got, yeah. I got I got pushed into some poses and I got hurt I got hurt doing yoga and there's also some wrong yoga like where it's um where it's really not good for your system like in those uh, sequences uh, not healthy and I so I tried many different things and Berlin is a good city for trying different teachers and it's also so cool to see like when you go to workshop and like man i read this book and you have you put him up here and then you see him and then you're like man he's he's an asshole like i i, I like he's a good teacher but he's an asshole you know and it's all like he it's like okay the stuff he wrote in the book or the, this stuff is cool that he's talking about but actually he's not a cool dude and i so what i it was really cool for me to see, okay, I can take this from there, this from there. And then 10, 11 years ago, I chose the teacher, Anna Forrest, and she's uh, she went a lot through her childhood, and she was like a drug user, addicted. and But then she became a shaman, is, stayed with Indians for a long time, learned a lot there, and really had is like a healer, but also has like a therapeutic yoga style so for me it was really important to not have like a, a competitive yoga style uh, with some teacher that is there with a big ego in front uh, abusing his power that's happens a lot in the yoga world and everywhere so it was really cool to to see that and also for me very humbling to 
I'm not really the person to be in front and teach a class and that the step from being a teacher and taking teaching classes for 30 euros an hour in a fitness studio to becoming a better teacher in the last 10 years, 11 years, like teaching old people, teaching children, um, but also at bike events, it's so beautiful. Like when you work with athletes, because I think I'm, I'm a little bit of a door opener for many, like I have a really active, tough yoga uh, practice that is still um, really deep and spiritual, but in a fun way. And at the end, it, it gets more, because that was yoga is about the whole the whole movement is so you 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 can shut your monkey off at the end, and you you you're breathing more deeply, and uh, you get more aware and it, it makes so much sense you know like breath is your 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 life force your life engine and you you should get teach that in school, I mean it's like having a Porsche and and only using twenty percent of the engine because everything is blocked and you're not aware of your breath. And it's, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, and for me also doing something and, and being humble, being learning, learning and, and, but also helping people. And it's, it's, it's beautiful when people, you can help, help people with back, back problems or other things. And, and, um, has it healed? Like, have you got to the point that the back is pretty healed now? Or is it an ongoing thing? Or would you say um, with no, your holistic view and yoga and less Western medicine? I, I to be honest, I mean, I abused my body quite a lot. I when I started yoga, I had like a shield, and I wasn't feeling myself, like a really a shield. I mean, of armor. I mean, when you do every other week in a dirt jump comp competition, and then you're like a warrior on a, on a bike. It, it's kind of needed, but and it when I started with yoga, I really started to feel my pain and my disbalance everywhere. So it really helped me. It took some time, but it was so needed to have that toolbox. And now, like when something happens, I get in, I have some stress, and then my weak points react. For example, that was also for me a big experience to how much emotional stress is doing to your system like i i often heard like when i sometimes i teach business yoga and there are some business people and they're like okay you're extreme sport athlete what i have to do with all your injuries and i tell them man when when you have a stressful relationship a stressful boss a stressful job it is just as much as breaking all these bones and having those concussions when you're in a toxic environment for your system. And um, yeah, also to talk a little bit personal, um, uh, I had a divorce really early on when my child was, my daughter was really young and it was really tough on me because that's why I got emotional because it's my child, my child was suffering from it. And my daughter lives now six hours away and I have to travel a lot. and. In the last eight years, so many court appointments. And um, so it was a lot for me to handle, but also again, to see what negative thoughts does do to your system or stress, how much it is. 
and had again and again to learn how to get those negative thoughts out or that big subject that was taking so much energy from me from me and um yeah it's uh for example i mean i i when it was like on a peak point with my my marriage breaking and all that stuff i slipped a disc and i i blew an eardrum from the stress and that's those were already so weak points when i was a teenager i was at a contest where the music was too loud ice tea body count i think it was and uh of course i mean riding from six and then so many Dutchum competitions and so many crashes, I have some weak points in my back. I, I was riding BMX street, like fearless doing when I, cause I loved skateboarding and, and in Berlin, it was a cool BMX street scene. And I, I did huge gaps to flat, stupid. Like when you're 18, 19, 20, you don't, you think you're invisible with your body. And I, I paid a price with my, my bones and everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there comes a point when you start realizing what can go wrong. Uh, and that's normally when it's, it's time to understand it real well. Because there is an inherent risk with competing. And if you're not 100% in it, you're probably going to have more crashes when you're not. Did you get to that point? Is there a point where you your mind started taking over? You talked about the gut feel. Do you do like do you remember point? Because I kind of can can look back and I was like, uh, I don't really like hitting the ground as much as I used to. Not like I liked hitting the ground, but I was like it was just part and parcel with with racing. Yeah, I mean it was it was a pretty long process. Um, for me, I mean like moving over from BMX to mountain bike. In the beginning, I had it pretty good being a BMX world champion and free riding, dirt jumping, mountain biking was just developing. And and um, I, I didn't feel so much pressure and it was everything was new and it was so cool. But then, uh, yeah, I'm competitive and I, I enjoyed it. But then what slowed me down was um, because I took those painkillers and uh, I also took some painkillers that got taken off the market in the States, 60,000 people died from painkiller is called Vioxx. Yeah. I think I heard that that name came up on a podcast previously. Like mm. there, there were some painkillers that had to get taken off the market. Yeah. And that's why I was school medicine and pharma industry. Boy, so much fucking shit happening there. They're gangsters. And, um, yeah, so my, my stomach was pretty sensitive and that kind of led to other things. I had like autoimmune stuff. I had, um, I don't know the English name, but it's called Epstein-Barr virus. Like many athletes have it, so like kind of fatigue and yeah, autoimmune stuff. Yeah, but that's stuff. exactly what we call it, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. So I had all those things and, and those things kind of combined up and for me it was really sucked to, to have less energy. I'm still dealing with it a lot, um, but I, I have my tools now and I understand it better. But it's so frustrating when you know it is when you're full of energy and, and, and you have a deep restful sleep or you digest the food really well. Um, 
also like I had one um, injection of uh, malaria when I went to Thailand when I was the beginning of 20s. And right after that malaria shot, it was also like a company that got taken off the market as well. Uh, I had all kinds of allergies. And I back then in the beginning, I didn't know. I was at the party and drinking a beer and I felt shit. And, um, and I, then it took me a while that I was so food sensitive. And um, so all those things kind of led to other things and obviously other things. And now, like I said, emotional stress now many years with my with my daughter being having trouble to see her and traveling so much and missing so much from her life. That was tough for my system. So then it makes so much sense that your gut is reacting to this. And um, so th that was like the tough part, dealing with having less energy. And it's not like, you know, when you go to an event uh, and I, I see it in my face, you know, I'm not awake, I'm not full of my energy. And uh, then people ask, hey, Timo, are you okay? Why are you so sleepy? And Or they take it personal. I'm like, hey, I, sorry, guys, I go to bed at nine. I, I don't want to drink. Or I I, I cannot fucking handle a, a business dinner now with 20 people. Sorry, guys, I, I take my own food. I go to bed. And, and sometimes people take it personal. It took a while, but they're like, they understand that I'm different there and sensitive with food and stuff. And... Um, but it was sometimes pretty frustrating to deal with it. I think it's a way of like your body telling you to slow down, like all these, some of these ailments and stuff, like kind of a, a warning sign. Like, dude, if you carry on like this, this is us warning you that the path you're on or the stress you're putting yourself under or competing still, like it's like, here's a war, like you said, here's a little, like little slap in the face, have a think. And then there's another one, you know, and it's kind of just giving you the opportunity to realize, shucks, this path, there's a lot of resistance here in your body. I, I totally hear you and and believe in, in, in how it works. Your body and your gut and all those things react to your stress levels and, and toxicity that's that's around you. Yeah, so it was a pretty tough road, but also me, my yoga teacher said, turn shit into fertilizer. <laughs> Because I, I I had to relearn how to cook <laughs> and use different food, you know. In the beginning of twenty, I was like, "Fuck, I'm going to Italy. I cannot have pasta, pizza. I'm allergic to tomatoes. Uh, I cannot have eggs." It was brutal. But back then, it was also harder to have all those different foods. And I I, I went pretty deep into uh, food, and I love cooking. I'm really creative when I cook and. I love spending my money on quality food and I have those farmers markets here in Berlin where I know farmers where I have like those fresh herbs or the best fresh meat from farmers that I know and hunters and and I yeah like it also like I wouldn't probably have started started with yoga as well like because I was so desperate I was the same guy wanting to go in a fitness studio and I was like I pump some iron and in uh yoga is for soft guys or whatever and uh so that I'm really thankful for that being able to learn so much about myself and also for me what it is is um taking care about myself and loving myself more like because I mean when you when you're fully in that competitive athlete thing you have to shut off a little bit and um, 
And uh, for me, it was really uh, taking care about myself. What do you What do you think you'd tell your twenty year old self, or maybe twenty five year old self now, with all this reflection and life lessons? Uh, yeah, not worry too much what other people think and and enjoy it more. I mean, I was I was fully enjoying it and and. Um, I'm really thankful for how everything was and is and um but yeah it's just like trusting myself more and it's also like I mean also like Martin Söderstrom talked about it also talked a lot with Peter Henke about it about mental pressure and uh, because Peter Henke like he was just on top on top top like Kenyan Red Bull all those sponsors and he had a big depression and had to go in a clinic and, and he just recently talked publicly about it and in free red magazine in Germany. And I think it's so important that other athletes and writers listen to that side as well and hear, okay, this is stuff that we have to deal with. And I think it's normal as an athlete when you have such highs and you're the bike star, to to be in balance and how difficult it is to deal with that pressure and it's um it, i also i wish sometimes that companies i mean some companies take care of the riders but often it is like okay if you don't function there's the next guy or you just the guy in the excel row ah let's cut that budget uh or like that okay you have pressure we understand and i mean you five years you'll be doing fnb world tour back to back that's a tough job why don't you concentrate and do some videos or it takes some time um i wish more companies would say that i mean in other industry like skateboarding surfing snowboarding it, it, it's it, the value i mean it, it comes now better as well like thanks to like guys like Brent Seminuk just saying hey I don't want to compete anymore and he's doing an amazing videos and other writers as well that it people start to see it more but there's still often companies that people that just weigh your results what competition uh, did you win you know it's it's only that side and I wish writers and people that they would get a bit more support there yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know, it's how, how do you relate this to someone else in different industries? I mean, if you said to someone, you do your degree or you do your apprenticeship like we did growing up, you get your skill set, and then you say, oh, by the way, there's no guarantees. You can't put in the work but not have results and you'll still have a salary. You oh, and by the way, every two three years it's called contract negotiation. So, I mean, how many people would start jobs? I know there's nothing guaranteed, but you know it seems at a corporate level, if you put the work in and you don't f up, you you know you often have a job. You know, there's a, a level of being comfortable there, which is good and bad, right? That's what drives uh, riders and athletes to perform is they know they could get chopped at any time, but that brings with it so much pressure expectation from yourself as well i think a lot of it's internal like you say you think it's from the sponsors but you're right the sponsors are understanding but if you demand a salary when you're winning 
then you become a victim of your own success because if you stop winning, and I saw that, you know, a bit in downhill, Aaron Gwynn, I don't know if you follow downhill too much, but I always say he's like a victim of his own success. He won so much. He made it look so easy that when he got second, third, fourth, tenth, you know, and he's had some bad seasons and now he's pretty much back. But that must be hard, you know, when when only win is, is accepted, right? For your contract negotiation, for yourself, your friends, your family. Oh, what happened? Oh, you didn't win. Oh, you didn't podium. What happened? Well, I don't know. I'm human. I just got beat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and like this, this who are you when you're not the bike pro and you get so associated with it. And um, th that's what, you know, what I said, like I felt so small inside sometimes. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Like it's, I on the one side, I'm really confident. I'm the bike pro and I jump six cars and I in front of so many people and I and I join in and all the intention but then I feel so small again like oh I'm happy I'm on the cover and then I'm not and then it is so silly and um, so ridiculous so I mean some things is also like I think some stuff is not in balance like when you're such an adrenaline junkie or you have you you in that fighting mode so much I think it's normal that you also have those lows and your hormones and your cortisol, everything is just out of whack. Like sometimes I feel only alive and I'm really active because like I, sometimes I feel pretty sleepy, but then once I'm, I don't have to risk my, my, my body on the bike. It's just, I, I, I want to be in nature. I want to have a ride and just go in the forest and then I feel alive. Yeah. Yeah, but you mentioned something like when you're not the mountain biker or when you identify with something so strongly, right? And that's it seems like a lot of athletes uh, have trouble with that. And maybe people that retire from the corporate world, like if all their world was being a successful businessman and, and that's awesome, respect to you, you know, and hopefully have some balance with the family and, and life that's happening around you. But uh, it's almost like, you lose something and even if you're very good at saying well you know i do mountain biking as a profession but i am a father or a brother or a human being or i'm a this sort of person even if you're good at it you know and you're forced to step away and and, and forget about that identity it, it can be pretty tough it's these i've also heard it's these masks we wear right and you do it in all works of walks of life mm. yeah Totally, I agree. Yeah, but I think it's also in, in the normal world. It's not only athletes. It's I often see it with with business people in yoga. They work their ass off and think that's that's the goal. They're going to be happy when they have that money, and really abuse the system, their body a lot too, just as we were doing it. And then they're fifty, have have maybe have the money, but they're sick, and um, or maybe also with women, they have. They, they get child they get a child and then that's the only thing in life and then the child grows up and then who, who are you then when the child is gone like i think it's also other parts in life that that is it's a normal part of our time being on earth that we get slapped sometimes some good ups and downs and you get the chance to to work on your on yourself yeah 
Yeah, I mean, life is a is a fascinating thing, but it's so difficult. Do you say everyone has these masks, right? And if you don't ask the questions, why do I wear this hat, or why do I care that what those people think about me? It's it takes such deep and tough work to realize. You know, what am I chasing for? What, like you said, but. I was racing and I had these world titles, but I wasn't happy. Someone doesn't understand that. What do you mean you're not happy? That life looks so awesome. Mm -hmm. Same as Martin Soderstrom, you know, talking out that he wasn't fulfilled. He, you know, he felt the pressures. I mean, he's a good looking lad from Sweden with all the cool sponsors in the world, successful. Um, and it is so tough um, to sort of deal with that. Um, and deal with these identities we put on ourselves, which come with expectations. Okay, well, I'm the perfect husband. That's an expectation, you know, if you're just a husband. But what? why? Mm. You know, mm. you keep asking yourself why. I think enough times about the same question, I think you start start finding these things. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a big journey. And it's not like when you when you start looking at those things, everything gets easy. For me, it's also a bit of layers, like the stuff I was looking at when I was end of 20. And then stuff comes up again. Or you get another chance to look at it. And uh, then this thing happens, happens in your life. But so often, I also feel like you get little signs. Hey, you better look at it. You better work on it. Don't let it slide. And if you let it slide, then then something bigger happens. Like even the small things, like, I don't know, like paperwork or procrastination, like putting things on the last second, it's, I don't know, maybe sometimes, like, it's it's so silly. Like, for, for example, often I, when I have the pressure, I can deal with the things, but I, I don't want to have that stress pressure to organize all my things to the last second. I want to do it happily before. But so often I do it on the last second and it's so silly like that I create stress there. Maybe because I'm so used to stress from bike riding or other things I somehow created. And, um, but, I'm, but I'm dealing it better with it now or, or I, I can stop myself. Oh, this is happening. Don't fall into this trap again. Just do your shit, you know, then you're going to feel better. You don't have to, um, yeah, yeah. Then, because then I talk shit to myself. Oh, I should have done it, man. I'm, I'm stupid. Why didn't I do this? And uh, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> oh man, the procrastination is real. But there's so many human natures, and like you say, sort of learned behaviors from childhood, all those sort of things. So um, Annika Birten came on and she's had a, you know, a tough time with a car accident that resulted in brain trauma, a lot of therapy. And she was forced to retire, really, not on her terms. And I think it's going to be quite the journey for her. And she's, she's opening up about it. I think we can all learn a lot from that. What does biking mean to you now? How do you use it um, when you go dirt jumping do you force yourself to not try to do too many tricks? Like, how do you get fulfillment from riding now? I mean, fulfillment for me is really like, I'm just like a normal bike rider. I, I really love going in the woods because the being in the nature is also really healing, healing for me. Um, 
sometimes I take my lunch with me in a backpack and just spend like do a ride for one hour, two hour. Doesn't have to be extreme, just having a good ride, uh, being in the woods and then having lunch at a big old tree and then meditating and then going back. So like for me, when I do that a couple times a week, I, I feel like so much better and then combining that with, with yoga and meditation, but also like at events, like I, I, or I love traveling, being in the mountains. Uh, for example, recently I, I had a video shooting and then I was, okay, I'm in the mountains. I want to just, I just find a mountain hut and stay there. And it was like a little bit off season and I was on 1500 meters staying in a mountain hut and the family was nice and they, they let me stay there. I was alone in a mountain hut and just riding my bike, exploring the mountains around me. For me, this is really what bike riding is about. But also on the other side, I, I love I like riding some trails and, and uh, what was like recently in the woods, there was like some 70 year old kid. He was like, who's this old guy on the e-bike jumping well? Like he was like, who's this guy? <laughs> And then, and then, then later on, um, he wrote me and we're like, oh my God, I, I, I wasn't even born yet when he tried a double flip, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> some other guys told him that I was in a dis disorder and he didn't know me. And then he was like, I wasn't even born yet. <laughs> Do you, that's so funny. Do you still get a kick out of that? <laughs> like sort of impressing the youngsters maybe impressing is not the right word but that's pretty cool though like you're just on this e-bike this guy's like who is this weird guy on e-bike but he's damn good you know you know you're you you're of that age and unfortunately the young generation has probably not seen any of the videos you know that time has passed you know yeah and, it, and it's totally fine like other people ask me about are you like wishing it back and i'm like I am so thankful for, with what I got through my bike. So thankful. I mean, I was really also there. I was able to to build up my name uh, and also make some good decisions, like designing the tabletop tire for Schwalbe. That was for for fifteen years. A tire was selling like like hot pretzels, <laughs> and and uh, or like <laughs> hot pretzels. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and you know having signature glasses from oakley and signature helmets from tsg and and um the my signature model from scott and really thankful for the scott time as well like so many so many good years there and uh, when i was team manager there and and um yeah so I'm, I'm really thankful and also i mean when i now see riders for them it's pretty hard to build up a name on one side some make it through social media but uh for me it's totally fine that they don't know my name anymore and now the 12 year old kid of course they know fabio Wittmer and danny danny mcaskill and and um if i'm, I'm really humble and uh, down to earth and yeah i'm, I'm really thankful for everything like i said it's still happening like now i get a kick out being at a luxury hotel doing a tour with some business people and teaching yoga and staying in a room that is 500 euros a night and just having a good time and being able to be in the nature and and give something back and and yeah 
talk about yoga and balance the life and and still jumping every once in a while but not not feeling the pressure it's uh, yeah it's still a little bit my own pressure to to look good on a bike and have style and and uh it's more the thing sometimes i'm still a bit distracted with other things with my daughter and that is that is happening uh but yeah i really really enjoy riding my bike yeah. that's awesome i uh, with the right crew I, I definitely do i think i struggle so i don't know if you can relate so i struggle because like the best time on the bike like you said are oh, risking my life or pushing yourself because when you push yourself you got to concentrate you're probably very in the moment so it's meditative so if i'm not going fast enough then I'm not pushing myself from on the moment. I could probably ride down at my 70, 80% and other people might say that's fast or it's fine with the group, but that's not what I need. But then if I go faster, I'm risking the crashes, which I'm kind of trying to avoid touch wood, right? So there's such a fine balance of having fun on the bike and, and where you derive it from. But I, I love speaking to you because you're saying, well, sometimes you just go right into the woods and maybe that should be not a goal, but, realize like you get so much from just being in nature and being around uh, trees and and just away from the busyness phone either in the car or hopefully in the pocket on silent you know yeah it's so important for me to to switch off and and um like i said i learned a lot through the last years as well when i had personal stress how much i really need to shut off and having a screen time and stuff and then just going watching a sunset and being in the woods and um yeah feeling it's also i mean japanese cultures like they they have those forest bathing kind of thing the the knowledge of this more and it, it makes so much sense that we need um that we need more nature time be some often as well, like when I when I travel or train rides or planes, I take my foot my my shoes off and be barefoot on the ground, and I feel so much more centered again. And um, for me, it's really learning, like having a toolbox for you for your for your stuff that feels good for you. And I, I also see often people always think, ah, I'm not flexible enough. I can't do yoga. And it, it's not. It's not about that. It's really just learning what is good for you and and having some tools when shit happens, when you're not in balance, and um, taking care of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna ask, how do we help people maybe start adding it a little bit? You know, it's maybe like meditation. It's not about being good at meditation. It's not about being good at yoga. It's about actually doing. The process and what it can do for you it's in the in the long run and sam reynolds you know f doing dark fist he's also maybe realizing he's getting a little bit older and, and he's got some yoga and stretching routine and i'm sure he he feels better for it he's not on your level but uh i think adding something like this can be super beneficial to all the other things that you enjoy doing you're not going to cut them out they're just going to be better you're going to maybe feel yeah. a little bit better on the bike feel yeah, a little for bit me, more relaxed in a business meeting uh maybe be able to deal with your family a little bit better if they're annoying you 
many can maybe re relate to when they have a really good physiotherapist, a really good osteopath, how much that does to your system. And, and when you have a good yoga class, for example, my yoga stool that I teach, the room is a little bit heated as well. So you really have like a sweat lot, you sweat a lot out. And, and after the class, like the reset that I have, it's really like having a really high, high, high end osteopath session, a bodywork session that is really good for you. And, and for me, I always hope that when people have a good yoga class, it's a little bit tricky. You can have like a shitty yoga class with some, some, I don't know, some woman or some guy or some person that did like a two week training and is a hectic, annoying person and fitness studio that is, and you, you get out of class and you're like, fuck that, that didn't help me. So it's, it's really finding the right style as well or what helps you and, and yeah supports you yeah i think that's awesome info and and hopefully uh me included can start adding it a little bit more i definitely don't feel worse afterwards that's for sure it was like training back in the day kind of sucked while i was doing it i'm not saying yoga should suck but in the beginning you're going to feel uncomfortable in the mind and body but after an interval session, I feel better. I was texting Martin as well. He's doing XC and Nordic skiing. I'm like, I, I joke with him. I know what's going on. I said, oh, I thought you retired. Why are you punishing yourself? And he's like, I don't know, but it feels good afterwards. And I said, I know why. Because you can't think about shit if you punish yourself and you're suffering in the body. You know, if you physically exert yourself. If anyone's feeling shit out there, I mean, I challenge them to go and do some running intervals or get that heart rate up, but properly, you know, uh, I think you'll feel, I think you'll feel better afterwards. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying you have to, you need to do it consistently, but, uh, yeah, often if I'm not myself, get myself back in the gym, get myself back on the bike physically, as well as, as mentally out in the woods. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But what I sometimes see, like, for example, like a business person that has a lot of stress, drinks a lot of caffeine, has a lot of sugar. And sometimes the way they train is the same way. Let's say they have like a really hardcore CrossFit training workout for 40 minutes or something like that. And they don't, but they don't have the relaxation at the end. They don't go to the sauna. They Oh, so it's they, like intense. It's yeah, like super yeah. intense. Like yeah. get it, get it done. Tick it off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we need the intense stuff as well. Like I'm a fan of it too. Um, I just see it sometimes that then, or like, you know, those, you have those road bike or cross country friends who, who are just fighting to the woods, you know, just so much fighting. And then it's the same energy. I feel like I, I, I need that fighting energy, but when you're always in it and it's the same, same way you work and you live and, and you don't relax after a tough workout, and you don't stretch a little bit or you, yeah, you don't take that time off. I think it's, it's really crucial that you do that. Yeah. So, so like slowing down is equally important in balance. Cause I'm thinking, you know what? I sometimes do that. I'm like, okay, I got 40 minutes. I said I was going to gym today and off I rush, smash it out, get home, dinner. And you're right. I pr probably would have benefited more from going there, maybe a little workout and then stretching or going for like a 10 minute, you know, even a bit of yoga probably would have done me way more good than trying to get 40 minutes of weight training in. 
it's quite ironic. It's like, I don't know where this programming comes from, but to slow down is critical in this world, especially in the modern world. Yeah, yeah, to have the balance. And for me as well, like sometimes when on train rides to see my daughter, like it's, I really also have to force myself just to look in the sky and not do anything else, not read a book, not watch a movie, not anything. Because I, then like things come up that are supposed to come up when I'm just looking at the sky. Because I mean, it's, it's insane how many people, how many hours on the phone. And it's for me, like my teacher said, like, be careful what you feed yourself from the inside with food but also from the outside. I also heard a saying like, you wouldn't let 100 people in your, in your sleeping room in, but that's what you do. And the first thing in the morning, first thing before looking at the sky, phone is on. And it, then 100 people talking to you, messages, messages, feedback, and and it's then your mind is full of bullshit and there's no room for creativity and and or thinking about the stuff that really matters. That, that's how I feel. Like for me, it's like, it's crucial. The first hour of the day when I, even if I just like, I slept bad and I just went on a walk and just, just a tiny walk and just looked in the sky and then had my breakfast and had a tiny meditation or a little workout or a little yoga or a little breathing exercise. Then, um, yeah, that does a lot for me, huh? Yeah, they, there's a saying, there's a saying, win the morning, win the day, right? But I think it, it, it is a habit to check that phone, but you're totally right. Like, would you let other people into your sleeping space? But at the same time, reading quite a few books, um, switching that phone on, everyone else is now trying to get your time. So if you actually want to, you know, accomplish things in the day or set goals or whatever. The minute you let inputs come in, people, I mean, what are texts? What are phone calls? Often someone wants something from you or it's an opportunity for both of you, but that is your energy is going to go to it. So if you don't block time, whether it's to do your creative work, whether it's to do a workout, whether it's to meditate, you're going to lose it and then you put it off and then you get home at night and, and everyone gets more drained. And then, you know, Netflix and chill at night is definitely the easy option and some people relax that way but if you have let everyone else into your morning and then your day it's basically letting someone else plan your life for you really yeah yeah my, my osteopath put it pretty well like he said our kidneys are two batteries and uh you can use the reserve battery no problem but if you do it too much and the reserve battery gets empty your kidney it's so much work to build it back up. And I, I seen it also like, I mean, I, I was pretty close to having a burnout and, but also with the companies I work with, I had friends, marketing managers, having this, this dead look in their eyes of having a burnout. And it, it, it really shocked me a little bit because it's, it's, it's brutal how, how they look at you and how, but it was also a mirror because I, I knew that look from my face when I wasn't feeling well. So it again, like turning shit into fertilizer, I had to learn how to take care. There's no other way. I cannot. Yes, it's cool to watch a good movie, have a good glass of wine and then uh, let go as well. But 
binge watching or like it's also like for me it's also like separating like the ego and also my my inner voice my my gut feeling like listening to that soft inner voice like when i like especially in the morning when i wake up i my ego is not switched on yet and i i hear my inner voice more or when i meditate i for me personally like i i cannot shut off my 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 mind or my thoughts but i can um what is relevant what is important or i hear my inner voice more and for me also the ego is sometimes I have thoughts like somebody is walking down the streets and I think my ego is saying like, what a, what a fat idiot. And I'm like, I would never say that. Like it's, this is not me. This, I, I, I wouldn't have this negative thought. And it's like, it's, it's, yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it is, man. I appreciate you opening up so much and, and being vulnerable with me and, what a what a fascinating conversation! I think we could go on go on forever. And how are you helping some of these other riders? You said you speak to Peter a little bit, and and probably some youngsters, maybe mentor a bit. What what sort of words of wisdom and and process are you helping them with um, to maybe not make some of the same mistakes you did? Um, I think for me, I think it's just listening to them and saying to them, hey. I totally understand you. I know what you're going through and just having somebody to talk to, I, or even with tips and telling them, Hey, please regularly go to your osteopath and physio because many of the, of the riders, they, they are afraid to go to the doctor because often they tell them you're fucked, stop riding or something like this, or they don't they have a good support. And I always tell them, Hey, please like, but um, I mean, it's even like big time riders with, with big sponsors or um, big support. Sometimes they, after a crash, they just smoke a joint and drink party and, and they don't see the physio. And, and I, I just tell them, hey, if you learn to take care better and it's so important to have a good body worker that knows you and it's, there's always a way because I, so many fucking times I heard, school medicine or some people tell me uh, you you messed up nothing we can do for example when i slipped my disc they said you have to be have an operation i did yoga and it was fine uh i had really pain on my foot that i broke at crankworks uh like two three years ago and the guy was like man your foot is messed up you're done i cannot help you i went to my osteopath and my my calf bone that is pretty complicated and sometimes it gets blocked and not many people know how to unblock it was blocked. He unblocked it. It was, it's fine. You know? So I, what I like, please always take a second opinion. Like it's so important to, I mean, you, of course you always have to trust and buddy, you, you have to dive deeper. And I mean, they're good, Western medicine, good doctors out there. You, I, and But there, there needs to be the, the whole approach. There's some people out there, they, they had the education 20 years ago and so much has changed. And and it makes me fucking angry how they're not supporting the people and just giving them painkillers. And th this, again, is a little bit my personal experience that I had and, 
you know, was taking the wrong painkillers or uh, they wanted to take my kidney out when I cut my kidney. And, and I was like, no, I signed a, pay- a waiver. I'm fine. I go, I go, you know, and, and it's for me also, it's that's those experiences also made me a bit more aware and not trust everything what they say, but also not trust everything what the media is saying now in the pandemic. I mean, that's a huge subject, but I was like, I don't know. I don't trust the pharma industry. I'm, I'm a little bit, I, I step back a little bit. I understand both sides of the pandemic, but those guys are gangsters, the pharma industry, you know, when, when you Google like pharma industry, um, uh, what's the right name, but uh, scandals, those are the companies they they had to pay the their world champion and paying, uh, paying fines. And there's things like, you know, like the painkiller I took, 60,000 people died. Or recently there was a baby powder where, and they had to pay 3 billion to the people that the babies, the parents had suffered. And it's like, well, we need, we need the, the, the both, uh, both of uh, the best of both worlds. Like you have the whole approach and yeah, <laughs> it's a big subject. Yeah, yeah, it is. But I mean, whether it's the pandemic and the media, but holistically, the whole subject, if you look at it, you know, painkillers technique, just like a bandaid on a, on a, on a cut. Sometimes it's a bandaid on a wound, but what's the root cause? What caused the wound? And even deeper, you know, we, we, you can go so much deeper and Western medicine, incredible, saves countless lives. Don't get me wrong. But it's not always the first and only answer. Um, like you say, with your back, I've had friends now and it's like, well, there is an operation, but what that's going to cause is probably another operation when those discs give out, et cetera, et cetera. But, or you can do the lifestyle change. And I've seen the memes. It's like uh, the one guy's offering like lifestyle change for health and healthy food and exercise. And then the other one says a pill. Well, we all know that the longest line is going to be, give me the easy option, give me the pill. Then potentially what is the hard option is like, wow, my habits aren't good enough here. But I think the pandemic and, and I think uh, speaking to you is helping us all realize you can question things. There might be another way. There might be another opinion you should seek out. Yeah, especially because, like I said, words are so powerful and uh, that people need to watch out more. Like if they say something negative to you and uh, say you can never walk again or you can never ride a bike again or something like this, those are huge words. And um, yeah, just that's my advice. That there's always a way to to handle those things. I mean, like, yeah, my foot is messed up. Like I, I shouldn't go running for 10 kilometers, but I, I know how to deal with it. I know how to unblock it. I know how to go swimming. I know how to go bike riding. I, I know how to strengthen the muscles. And yes, I, I abused my body and I, I, I paid a price. And yes, but that's, for me, it's fine to be like, uh, yes, that was my choice. And now I have to uh, do some extra 20 minutes and that's totally and learn a lot more about my system and body yeah yeah timo i mean that's probably incredible words that there's always another way maybe we can wrap it up if i've missed Mm -hmm. anything or something you want to offer 
to to the listener, please by all means. Mm, uh, yeah, like I said, there, there's so many things, but um, yeah, for me, it's also my bike taught me that everything is possible as well. For me, maybe also for the bike riders that my osteopath told me this, like you know that you you see that every you can achieve everything and and for me the, i think the challenges when when your career is over or that you also find something that you also have a passion for and but everything everything is possible and it's um for me i think that my bike teached me that that you can just go for it and and sometimes i, I think sometimes the american um, Metallies also they just go for it they try this they try this sometimes the Germans are a bit like oh this is this has to be the way you, in the rule book this is you have to do this and uh, and I'm not saying it's not easy like when I when I was a postman and not making much money and I still just wanted to ride a bike my parents didn't think they were like okay what is he gonna do but for me it's I, I met so many because my, my my dad always told me that you have to have this education, you have to study and this. Because that was his experience. He was a car mechanic, and he saw the people with education that maybe had it easier than he. But for me, it's personally more being being happy and and doing something that you love, and 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 giving something back that is fulfilling. Like you know, you helping people with your podcast, and you get something back. I I do yoga, or like. I, I get feedback from from writers that, that you know when they were fifteen they had my poster on the wall and and um, and it's yeah it's it's a good ride <laughs> yeah man it is a good ride and um, yeah if we can give value to just one listener one fan I think that's job done here but I think it's going to be a whole lot more than one but I think there's just a lot of love to go around. There's a lot of support in the industry. If you reach out and you've just opened up, mentioned personal things, if you don't talk to someone and don't admit when you're going through struggles, then how can anyone help you? Because someone might have gone through similar struggles. And if anyone's out there, um, man, you know, keep at it, keep as positive as you can. But sometimes those are just words. Um, but message me, message Timo. I think... We've probably opened up quite a lot of wounds here. So, Timo, bro, what a great conversation. Definitely won't be our last. Um, they can find you on Instagram. Where where else should they follow along? Yeah, I'm, yeah, pretty much Instagram and Facebook. Uh, my webpage is offline still. Um, still, many people ask me about YouTube videos. Um, uh, it's on my to-do list. <laughs> I've got a, I really want to do that soon. Have some yoga videos, <laughs> <laughs> and because I I used to just like it more when it's personal when I have a group. Oh, of cool! People. I'd like to see some yeah. of those. Get the yoga into the mountain bike industry through your through your yeah. mountain bike fan base. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I really want to do that. But yeah, reach out to me on uh, Instagram, Timo Prutzel or Yoga for Bikers, and um, I'm I'm happy to help with with questions. Maybe also what yoga style or. I'm pretty connected in the yoga community and um, yeah, that's, that's about it. <laughs> so yes, thank, thanks a lot for the opportunity and it's, and it's cool to, to die, 
to get back and bring up some stories and history and and uh, like I said, I'm really blessed and really thankful to that my bike is still open, open me doors. I'm still traveling with my bike now, also the yoga mat, and um, I'm I'm looking forward to. I, the thing is, like I, I really believe and uh, I trust in life because that, that's what my bike also showed me. No matter what is happening, yeah. Well, that's awesome from a BMX world champion to jumping the Berlin world to traveling the world now with a yoga mat and a bike. Timo, inspiration to me. Guys, this has been Moving the Needle podcast. If you like this one, uh, please try share this one with a friend. I think a lot of people could benefit from it. That's the biggest thank you can give me is uh, help someone else out there. And, and hopefully it helped you. Feedback can go to Timo, me. I'm all good. Remember to send in any listener questions, which we do that episode as well with me and Miles. Like, subscribe. You know what to do. Peace out, world. All right. Thanks a lot.